you have your Bibles, you can open them up anywhere you please. Uh, we have uh, a little bit of a different way of going about our sermon today. Typically, as you guys have been here for a while, and if you're a visitor, this is uh, an atypical day. We usually sit down in a text and sort of go through the text with one another and see what we can glean from that text. But as we have been working in the past several months through Deuteronomy and now through Joshua, um, there has been something that, that sort of exists in the background of these passages that we want to take a step back and to think more deeply about so that we can better understand our God, the nature of that God, and the nature of his judgment. Oftentimes, the Old Testament can be seen as something that is just a horrific run of violence and anger and wrath. This is not noticed by us alone, but it has been noticed for as long as the church has been around that the New Testament seems to be, to many eyes, more loving and gracious and kind in its presentation of God, whereas the Old Testament presents a God who is angry and wrathful and biting at people simply to destroy them. Marcion was a very famous church heretic who in the earliest portions of the church said that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament, that the Old Testament God was wrathful and angry and the New Testament God was gracious. Marcion went so far as to not only take the Old Testament out of Scripture, but to take much of the New Testament out of Scripture as well because it spoke too highly of the God of the Old. That heresy is not just for the early church, it is for today. The famous, infamous, atheist Richard Dawkins writes this in The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament, notice, not the New Testament, not the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, which I'm not even sure is a word, uh, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Someone needs a Snickers. (laughs) At least he found his thesaurus that morning. Um... Now, that, that might be like taken to the extreme, but I think a good portion of Christians today have a severe discomfort when it comes to reading the Old Testament because at least part of what an atheist writes about the God of the Old Testament rings true to us. God does seem very angry in the Old Testament. You'll notice Dawkins says very clearly, not only does he think it's fiction, but he also thinks it's the God of the Old Testament, not the God of the New Testament. This not only happens with various portions of the Old Testament, individual judgments, but as we have been talking about with massive judgments in the Old Testament. The most massive judgment in the Old Testament that continually comes up is what we have talked about in the genocide of the Canaanites from the Promised Land. And God calls for his people to go into the Promised Land and devote all of them to complete destruction. If anything that Dawkins is pulling from, where God seems to be vindictive and angry and genocidal, it would be this incident that we have talked about but sort of passed over. What we want to do today is to pull back 
from Scripture a little bit to take a 30,000-foot view of all of this because it gets at the heart of what we mean when we talk about God being good. And certainly, it gets at the heart of what we mean when we talk about the New Testament God and the Old Testament God being the same God. How can it be true that grace and mercy have come in Jesus Christ and wrath and anger are found bleeding through every single page of the Old Testament? Are they the same God? And if so, how? How do we put them together? So today we will be looking at the act of genocide throughout both Deuteronomy and Joshua. And I want to mention a couple things that we're not going to be doing today, which I think are prevalent when we discuss things like this, and in their own context can be good and useful, but we are simply not going to interact with them today. First of all, other than this saying, I'm not going to say it, the words Islam and Muslim will never come out of my mouth. I am not concerned with comparing Christianity to Islam. I'm just not. And especially not when it comes to genocide and not when it comes to our ability or inability or the prohibition or the commandment to kill other people. It's just, it's a non-starter. It doesn't matter at all because the main difference between Islam and Christianity or Islam and Judaism is not in the ethical commands that come from God, but it is in the God who provides those ethical commands to begin with. Therefore, I don't much care about comparing Christianity to Islam on the basis of whether jihad is okay or not. Secondly, I am not, not going to prove to you that God is okay for doing this in the Old Testament. That is also not our purpose today. We are in no, no situation. We are in no position. We have no right to bring our own judgments against Scripture. Scripture is not given to us so that we can approve or disapprove of what is written in Scripture. Scripture is God's revelation to us. We are not in a position to say whether it is true or whether it is false or whether we accept it or whether we don't. It judges us. We do not judge it. So we are starting from the position that what God does, what God says, and how he says it and how he does it is good. End of sentence. We are as... Augustine famously says, beginning with faith and seeking understanding. We begin with trust in Scripture. We begin with trust in a God who has revealed himself. And all we are seeking then is to understand that God. Those are our starting points. So, the first thing we need to ask is whether or not this is actually genocide. So, point one is simply the question, is this Genocide is what God commands to be done to the people of Canaan, genocide. That is, is it actually the destruction of all of these ethnic people? Is that what God is commanding? And there are people who have argued that it's not actually what God is commanding. These are fairly famous arguments, but they extend from mostly one chapter of the Bible, one portion of the Bible, although we're going to pull from a couple of them to show that this might be the case. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Deuteronomy 7. And you can stay in the beginning passages of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy would be a pretty good place to be today because we will reference it several times. In Deuteronomy 7, we we get from Moses one of the clearest commandments of what the Israelites are to do upon their entering the promised land. This is a passage that we have read previously several weeks ago, if not a couple of months ago. We read in Deuteronomy 7 from the first five verses of that chapter. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them 
to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Many people have looked at that passage and said, you know, that whole devoting them to complete destruction thing sounds pretty bad. But there's a couple of things that happen in this passage and then in other passages that make us question whether or not that could be just exaggerated language. We've talked about this in Sunday school, that it's clear the Bible oftentimes uses exaggerated language to make points and to make them firmly. And there's a couple of things about this that imply that maybe this is just exaggerated language. For instance, why would God command for the Israelites to completely destroy them, to devote them to complete destruction, and then turn around in the very next verse and say, by the way, you, you can't intermarry with them. The one kind of takes care of the other. If they're all dead, there's no one to intermarry with. And so people look at this and they say, well, I mean, it kind of seems like this might just be exaggerated language. And even in the first verse, it says he clears away many nations from before you. Over in Deuteronomy 9, the same kind of sentiment is given. In Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 through 5, Moses says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into, the, into possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And so people come back and they say, see, you see what's going on here? This devoting to complete destruction, it's an exaggeration because they're told not to intermarry. God comes in and he says, I'm going to thrust them out of the land. The, the point is that there shouldn't be any Canaanites in the promised land. That's the point. And that if, if you can drive them out, that is completely destroying them from the promised land, then, then we're all good. That's what it means. Okay, well, there is some exaggeration here. We know that there is some exaggeration, and we're giving clues to that because, again, we have these commandments where all and every and completely devote to destruction, that kind of stuff seems exaggerated in its very language. We know it's exaggerated because... The first Canaanite that we meet inside the promised land is Rahab, and she is definitely not devoted to destruction. So we know that there are exaggerations here because we know that there are exceptions, but Rahab, Rahab kind of proves the rule. This is not simply an exaggeration. This is what God desires. When we meet Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, this is what she tells the spies that she wants. In verse 13 of that second chapter, she says, You will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. That makes it seem like Rahab is not concerned just for her father and concerned just for her brothers, the men of war who might be put to death in a battle. She is concerned for her own life. She is concerned for the life of her mother. She is concerned for the life of her sisters and likely the lives of their children as well. She knows very well what Israelites entering the promised land means. It means that they are all going to die. What is more, even in the book of Deuteronomy, while it seems as though this could be a passage that leans towards simply exaggerated language, in Deuteronomy 20, 
we have a juxtaposition between war that happens outside the promised land and war that happens inside the promised land that implies incredibly strongly that this is not just exaggerated language. In Deuteronomy 20, beginning in verse 10, Moses is talking about how warfare is to exist outside of the promised land. And he says, when you go up to a city, you're going to offer peace to that city. And if they decide to have peace with you, then you can make terms of agreement with them. But if they don't accept your peace agreement, then you can go to war with them. In verse 13, he says, And when the Lord your God gives that city into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy all the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given to you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. That is clearly not talking about just the men and the cattle. That is clearly talking about the women and the little ones as well. Even in the passage that we just got done reading last week, Joshua 6.21 After Joshua has run through the city of Jericho, they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Regardless of how we interpret the Old Testament, it is clear that Joshua heard the commandment of the Lord as being every single person. It isn't just exaggerated language. God wanted all of them killed. What then do we say about this? First, before we begin to speak about anything else, we need to set some things straight, and this is why we need to pull back from the text. God is creator. God is creator. Simply because of that fact, because God has created everything, because he has formed it and fashioned it with his own hands, that gives him rights over every single thing that lives and breathes and moves on this earth to do with what he wants to. No matter how uncomfortable that might make you, that is indeed the case. He has rights over his creation. Isaiah 45, in a longer passage, we will read from Isaiah 45, the first nine verses. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, who is a foreign king. So Cyrus is not an Israelite, but he's a foreign king, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to lose belts of kings, to open doors before him and that gates might not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call by you by your name. I name you though you did not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun in the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So he says very clearly, Cyrus, the reason why you are going to have any success at all, you got to put it out of your mind right now, is not because you are mighty, not because you are strong, not because you are capable, but because I am doing it. What gives God the right to loosen the belts of kings and to destroy nations, to tear down and to build back up? He comes 
back to this idea in seventh verse, where he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Who are you? as a human being, Cyrus, or anyone, to look at God and say, you can't treat me like this. You are created by God. He has rights over you. He has the ability to do what he desires with his creation. This is fundamental to the fact that he has created. Any great work of art is in the hands of the artist. They have the right to do with it what they want. You cannot go to a museum and deface a painting, but you know who can? The artist can, because it's his God has the rights over his creation, and his rights over his creation are even greater than our rights over ours because we didn't make the paint. We didn't make the canvas. We didn't make the clay, and we didn't make the stone. We made things out of that which already was, but God has created you out of nothing. He has every right in the world. This comes through in multiple passages. Also in the Old Testament, the book of Job, where Job fights against God simply because he is innocent. God declares at the very beginning of the book, Job is upright. But he allows Satan to take everything from him. He allows Satan to take from him his family, his business, his health. His wife wants him to curse God and die. His friends come and torment him. Everything is removed from Job, and Job cries out, this is not fair. If I could stand before God and I could complain to God, I would make my case, and God would understand me, and God would hear me. And so when God shows up, we expect, knowing what has happened behind the scenes, that Job would present his case before God, and God would say, you know what, Job? I I hear you, brother. You're right. This has been a little bit unfair. But when God does actually show up, these are the kinds of questions that God asks for him. It's not God who's on the witness stand. It's Job who's on the witness stand. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely, Job, you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made cloud its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther." And here shall your proud waves be stayed. He doesn't come and answer any of Job's questions. Instead, he says, who made everything, Job? You don't have a right to talk to me about anything. You don't have a right to question my methods or my concerns in your life. I get to do what I want to do, for I am God. To go no further than this is to understand that God can do what he wants when he wants how he wants. Romans 9, we get the exact same thing. You will say to me, 
Paul says, why does God still find fault? If he only has mercy on some, but he doesn't on others. If he works in some a certain way and doesn't work in others. If he elects some and he doesn't elect others. We're prone to say, how can God then still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Or in the words of Isaiah, are there no handles on this pot? God gets to do what he wants to do. He gets to create some vessels for destruction, and he gets to create some vessels for grace. That is just the way it is. God is creator. Not only is God creator, he is all-powerful, So he has the rights and the power to do what it is that he wants. Part of us wants to rebel against this. We want to say, listen, it's it's just not right. It's not right that God can snuff out my life whenever he chooses. While it might be a futile exercise, sometimes futile exercises are good. We can stand up and and say what is is right. We can complain and, and act defiantly toward God to claim what is right and good. But the problem is, that God is both our creator and we are sinful. God is always in the right and we are always in the wrong. We don't need to go too far in the Bible to find this in Genesis 3 already. One of the first things we actually see Adam and Eve doing after their creation and the blessing of God coming upon Adam by providing Eve for him and this song of praise coming out of his mouth, immediately we read of sin entering the world. God has said, you cannot eat from that tree or you will die. The serpent shows up and says, you will not surely die. From that point on out, all of us are doomed to death. Every single thing that comes to us, every life, every moment of life, every breath, every morsel of food that crosses your lips, everything good that ever happens to you is nothing but undeserved mercy from God. You don't get to complain that God's being unfair with the very breath that he gave you that he didn't need to give you out of mercy. The very fact that you have a brain that can utter, that can think thoughts and breath that can utter words that decry God's unmerciful actions are only there because he has been immensely merciful to you. And the fact that we don't see it shows all the more our own sinfulness. As Paul would say in Romans, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. In Ephesians 2, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the ways of this world. You were dead. You weren't just looking forward to a future death, but you were dead here and now. You are the walking dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sins because you will surely die. God's judgment upon us does not no matter what form it comes in, to cry that he is unjust, but it is all the more an affirmation that we are sinful. Do you notice what we do? Do you notice what Dawkins does? Do you notice what all of us do when we go to the Old Testament and we judge God for being judgmental? We do exactly what Job wanted to do when we put God in the witness stand. And we say, you need to tell us why you've acted this way. When it is actually us who should look at a good and merciful God and say, what have we done? What have we done to deserve what God is doing to us right now? We are sinful. 
That brings us to the third point, and that is that God chooses his instruments. God chooses his instruments. God can have mercy, and he can visit with destruction. The question is, why does God use Israel here? Why does he use his people? If God wanted to destroy Egypt, if he wanted to destroy Canaan, he could do it in any of a number of ways. He could bring fire and brimstone down from heaven like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah. He could bring a plague. He could bring black death and wipe all of them out. He could not do it through any physical means and just snuff out their lives. He could make all of them disappear in an instant. He upholds their lives with the power of his word. He is powerful over life and death and all things. He doesn't need to use any physical means to bring the end of life to people. He can simply stop supporting them and they are are done for. Why use the Israelites? And then in turn, does God use us this way today? God chooses his instruments at his own times and for his own means and his own discretion. It is not that he chooses the Israelites to visit wrath upon the Canaanites because the Israelites were greater or better or more righteous than the Canaanites. Again, just as we have read out of Roman or excuse me out of Deuteronomy chapter 9, that same verse goes on to talk about the fact that it is not because of your righteousness that I'm giving you the land. It's because I'm using you to judge the wickedness of the Amorites who are already there. We know from reading through Exodus that many, many times at the golden calf incident, at the waters of Meribah, God looked down at his people and said, Moses, brother, I am going to destroy them off the face of the earth. And it is only because Moses intercedes that God relents from doing that. It is not because the Israelites were more righteous. It is simply because God chose them to use them in this way. This is not the only time that this is going to happen. God will choose to use other people who are disobedient. He will choose to use other people who are unrighteous. He will choose to use people who are sinful in the utmost to discipline his people and even to bring about good things. Habakkuk, the very first chapter of that book, opens up his prayer by saying, I look around and all I see is violence and destruction everywhere, God. Your people have turned away from you. What are you going to do about this? Why haven't you visited your people to clarify this? Why is it that you have not come to make things right? And God says, hold on, Habakkuk, because I'm going to do something that you wouldn't dare even guess. I'm bringing the Chaldeans. I'm bringing the Babylonians. And they are going to straighten out my people. They will bring my judgment upon my people. Habakkuk rightly understands what happens here and in the utmost reverence questions the judgment of God by saying this in Habakkuk 1.13, You, that is God, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He says you would use the Chaldeans to punish your people, to discipline your people. How can you do that? The Chaldeans are so wicked. God gets to choose not only what he does with his people, but how he does it as well. Not only does this happen with the Babylonians, but it happens even with the Jews. At Pentecost, the Spirit comes on to Peter, and Peter proclaims the first Christian sermon, post-Christ sermon, ever uttered by men. 
And he looks at the men of Israel and he says these words in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew what was going to happen long before it ever occurred. When he talks to Job and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth before God set those foundations and poured the concrete of that foundation? Long before that ever happened, he had it planned that this would happen to Jesus. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God used crooked sticks to bring about good straight lines. It was the work of lawless men and the lawless deeds of people handing Christ over to others that allowed for Christ to take upon himself the wrath of God and to free us from our sins. And this happens by the definite and foreordained plan of God. God gets to choose the instruments that he uses. Let's be very clear about this. As we already saw in the book of Deuteronomy, this is a very limited and very narrowed scope for which something like this can happen. And it is not the commission that we have in the New Testament. The commission that we have is similar to the commission the Israelites have. We are to go and we are to clear the pagans from the promised land, but that is to convert them to Christianity. It is a call and a commission from Christ to make disciples of all nations. God chooses his instruments and God provides something better for us. God provides something better for us. We don't go over this kind of stuff just to make sure that we defend scripture. We're not terribly interested in just defending scripture. We're not doing this simply so that you can leave this sort of mental exercise and be pacified in your anger against God and sort of have it be, be calmed a little bit like spraying water on hot coals and watching them steam off a little bit but knowing there's still heat buried under there. That's not the purpose of why we go through stuff like this. It's not the purpose for which Deuteronomy and Joshua were written. They were written not even for the people then but they were written for you, friend. These exist for you. They are examples to you. As much as we deny the mercy and the grace of the Old Testament, we also deny the wrath and the anger of the New Testament. We need to see that both are there. The Canaanites had 400 years of God's mercy. He told Moses in Genesis 15, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 400 years, God would be long-suffering with their sin. 400 years of mercy. 400 years of waiting to bring destruction upon them. 400 years of overlooked mercy and kindness and grace to the Canaanites that they use only to multiply their sin as they allow their own children to be passed through the fire to appease a God who is no God. 
So God comes and takes away their lives, but he is merciful to them. Even in his judgment, he is merciful. And do not then for a second expect that you cannot experience God's mercy in this world. Every breath you take, every single one is a breath of mercy. From the food you eat to the air you breathe, every single second of your life is a life that is lived only under the auspices of God's mercy. You cannot escape that. He is immensely merciful to you, but that mercy, just like it had for the Canaanites, has a definite end. That mercy will come to a stop. The mercy of the Old Testament is lesser than the mercy of the New Testament because in the mercy of the New Testament, you have grace that extends not for a long period of time. It extends forever in Jesus Christ. He does not wait 400 years to punish you so that you can get it right. He makes you right and gives you grace and mercy forever in Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation at all for those who are found in Christ. God was indeed very merciful and he is merciful to you today. Do not overlook his mercy. He has delayed in his coming, according to Peter, simply to be merciful to you so that you could repent of your sins and turn to him and live. Likewise, what Dawkins and what Marcion get wrong is not just that God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New, but they have downplayed the wrath of the God of the New Testament. His wrath is seen all over. For the very nature of Christ in coming was to die a horrid death, to pay for the wrath that was owed to us. And although he came as a lamb, don't be so naive to think that he's not coming back as a lion. He came as a lamb to give his life for you, to again provide mercy and grace. But when he returns, he will be carrying a sword and he will be slicing people through. And he will devote to complete destruction anyone who stands against him in a way that Joshua never did. Joshua leaves people alive. The beginning of the book of Judges is a list of the failures of Joshua to do what God had commanded him to do, but the new and better Joshua will not do that. There will be no enemies for the people of God. Those who do not find their rest in him will find their, his sword in them. And he will devote them to complete destruction. The wrath of the God of the New Testament is firmer and more bloody than the wrath of the God of the Old Testament. And the reason why we don't believe it is because we only believe in what we can see and what we can hear and what we can read. We think that at the end of our physical lives is the totality of the punishment that God gives. That is but a picture of mercy and that is but a picture of judgment. The one that is coming is much worse. In all, then, throw yourselves upon the mercy of God. How great a mercy has he given you that instead of destroying you in your very breath, taking it away from you as we speak, he allows you to live to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed that anyone who finds themselves in him, believing in him and trusting in him, has their debt paid by him and therefore no wrath exists over them anymore. That mercy has been extended to you in the gospel. Take advantage. This is the year of the Lord's favor. 
You were not promised another day, but you have been made aware of the promise of the gospel. Cling to it. Passages that speak of God's unrelenting anger and wrath ought to make us uncomfortable. We ought to read what's happening in the book of Joshua, and we are to be uncomfortable by it. It should be something that shakes us, but probably not for the reason that it does. They should make us uncomfortable because they speak to us, not of God's injustice, and make him seem to be a bully and filled with unspeakable anger. But the reason it ought to make us uncomfortable is because God is truly love, and he is truly filled with mercy and kindness. And how much wrath does our sin deserve? Our sin deserves wrath. It deserves vengeance and demands it from God, for God is holy. Such passages do not speak to us of God's injustice, but of our sin, and begs for us to find refuge in Christ. The gospel, as given to us by Ezekiel, would plead with you today. As we read in Ezekiel 33, 11, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die? Why die? Why exist under the wrath of God when he has provided such a great salvation for you? Do not give yourself over to death, but find life in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Let us pray. Father, you are holy and righteous. And we might ask, who can ascend your hill? Who can enter your gates? Who can stand before you? In Sunday school this morning, we heard from the book of Isaiah that you are thrice holy. Isaiah knew immediately in standing in your presence that he was wicked and sinful. Father, we would die before you if not for the work of Jesus Christ in our lives to not only forgive us for our sins, but to strengthen us in holiness that we might stand before you because of what he has done. We pray, Father, that we, we do not die before you. Pray that we might know of your wrath and your anger only through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray that your spirit might fill us with the knowledge of our sin. But a knowledge that does not lead to greater and greater sin, but a knowledge that leads to repentance and to faith, to trust. You are a good God. May you be glorified forever. Thank you for the work that you have done in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word which has declared it to us. Thank you for your spirit that seals it to us. Thank you, Father, for you are good all the time. In Jesus' name, amen.